Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Deep in History. I'm uh, co-hosting this with Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor. Hello. Hi, Marcus. Good to see you. And I'm Marcus Grodi, the president and founder of Coming Home Network International. And if you're joining us for the first time, I've said this before, it's great to have you, but I would really encourage you to jump back and start from the beginning of these long series of podcasts, because even as we jump into our section today of Against Heresies, we're recognizing that much of what Irenaeus is saying in this is built upon the stuff he's been writing in in four and a half books. Right, Monsignor? I mean, it's a long flow of his argument. He often uh, repeats himself, uh, but often he'll, he'll, in fact, at one point in here, I don't know if it's in this chapter or one that I read recently, he kind of said, well, you know, I've been covering this for four books, you know, uh, he makes that statement himself. Uh, um, it almost makes me wonder if 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 he's some people have been saying, Aaron, will you please get that project done? You know, I've got a youth group over here. I'm trying to get started, and I need your help. You know, <laughs> but we're going to look today at Irenaeus's against heresies chapter book five, and we're going to start with chapter. 19, section 2, it's where we ended last week, it's on page 495 of Keeble's translation. Oh, and once again, those of you, if you don't have that, you can go to our website, and if you go to the online community, then you go to where all the sources and resources are, and then you click on Deep in History, and you get, and you're connected with all these podcasts. If you scroll all the way down to the bottom, there's a link to the PDF of this book. It's free. So, in case you wonder. So, we're going to begin on 495. And our goal today is actually, we're only going to cover about two pages totally. We're just going to cover chapter 20. And we're entitling this episode, The Hidden Pit of Ignorance. The Hidden Pit of Ignorance, because throughout this section, we're going to deal with heretics, and we're going to deal with how do you know what is true. And Monsignor, I want to throw something back to you uh, as we jump into this, because uh, before we get into the details, maybe if you will reflect a bit on how what Irenaeus is saying in the end of the second century applies for the next 1,800 years until today. That's not the easiest question you've thrown at me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I... In a general sense. Yeah. You know, last night um, I read... I read two 
papal encyclicals, um, kind of thinking about all this stuff that we're going to deal with tonight. And one was from Pope Leo the Thirteenth, okay. and he um, was he he was the end of the nineteenth century. End of the nineteenth century. It was his um, work. Uh, his encyclical in 1893, Providencissimus Deus, um, God, the providence of all. Um, and and then also Leo the Twelfth on um, Leo the Twelfth. Let's see, where was it here? Um, not Leo the Twelfth, Pius the Twelfth, Humanae Generis. Um, these are both. These were texts written about helping Catholics get ready. How do you deal with all this biblical criticism that's coming our way? Oh, yeah. um, and can a biblical critic uh, interpret the text of the Bible just with human reason, or does mm -hmm. does he or she need the, the apostolic tradition of the Church to do that? And both of those, Leo and, and Pius, are really very profound in those two texts about how, and they both cite Irenaeus on this, how, you know, the, the whole key to understanding scripture is through the way that it was preached and handed on to the church from the apostles. You know, and I, I think about First Clement, which was written by uh, Clement. There are, there are two different views on when that was written, and the majority view believe that it was written when he was Pope of Rome. And right. He was, I think, the fourth, right? The fourth after. Yeah, yeah. I believe that too. Right, and that's in in right. Mm -hmm. I. And uh, so he would have been the the early centuries, the early years of the second century, it, during he was serving as bishop of Rome. Another view, which is, of course, a minority view, but uh, uh, it came out in a book published by Emmaus Road, argues that Clement wrote it, but wrote it when he was a, earlier, when he was a, a priest in Rome. He wasn't yet, and he was writing it with the same goal. But the only reason I bring this out is Clement's written, regardless of either of those times, it was written at a time before the majority of the New Testament documents were considered at the same level that Irenaeus right. considers them. And when you interpret, when, when you read First Clement, which always amazed me, is that the, the foundation for almost all of his arguments are the Old Testament documents. In other words, he, he's certainly Christian. He's certainly interpreting them the way Matthew does. In other words, I think he quotes Matthew, actually. Um, uh but, uh, but, but this idea of, of of how do you determine what's what's true? 
he sees Scripture, the Old Testament, really kind of in the same line, but interpreted through the typological understanding of the Old Testament, which is what what, mm-hmm. what Irenaeus does. But if to me, if you step back and you think how how over all these centuries has the devil, what has been the devil's strategy over and over and over and over again to undercut everything? And in the, you, you see during the third, fourth, fifth centuries, the devil bringing just uh, dog-eat-dog battles, even between bishops, over how do you interpret Scripture? How do you understand the apostolic deposit of faith? And so you have all these battles. But what you're referring to is that what happens beginning pretty much in the 19th century is this the devil attacking the very foundation of Scripture itself. Right? I mean, it's... That's right. So where do you go? Where do you go for for truth if you're struggling? And uh, I mean, I was I found my notes, Monsignor, <clears throat> from when I had my Christian conversion during the time I was in college. Between my junior and senior year, the first thing I did in my senior year was all of a sudden fill all my electives with religion classes because I was on fire, and. Uh, and so the first course I signed up for sounded like an awesome course. It was called The Problem of the Historical Jesus. <laughs> and I thought, this sounds exciting. You know, I'm on fire with Jesus, so I'm going to read. And yeah. I'm reading a, bo- you know, a book by the title, The Problem of the Historical Jesus, plus I'm reading Boltmann. And I'm reading all of those books written by the very guys that were challenging the authority of Scripture. And it was only by the mercy and grace of God that I got through that course and kept my faith. But I'm, I think I'm tagging on to what you said, that you know, here we are 1,800 years later after Irenaeus, and almost all the foundational sources that he would have take, taken for granted as the foundation of truth have been attacked from every conceivable angle. And he's talking in this section about heretics. Heretics. And and that's what I was getting at, Monsignor. You know, is this something that only applies to his day? Or has this been a, a problem ever since? And uh, as we study this, I think that's, to me, that's the more important question. It's important to hear what Irenaeus was thinking, but how does it apply even to our own day? Uh, to me, is is significant. All right. Um, so, he, for those of you who are following us along, we're gonna what we're gonna do. The reason we've only chosen two pages, if you will, essentially a total of two pages, two and a half pages, is we're gonna go through almost word for word this and talk about it because there's so much in here. That is to me really important, um, uh, but we're going to also jump over a big section, and we'll tell you that when we get to it. All right, Monsignor, you ready to jump in? Ready to go. Okay. So he's just finished speaking about Our Lady, and without apologetics—I mean, apology, 
No, 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 no. I don't mean apologetics. Put that aside. Forget I said that. Without apology in terms of, uh, you know, the way we use it. He calls her Theotokos, the one who bears God. And she's an advocate. And she's the new Eve. So all of that, she is saying, uh, Irenaeus is confirming as the teaching of the church, at least as he's received it. And then we think, well, wait, there are people that may not agree. There are people that may not agree. So then the next paragraph, section two, he deals with heretics. So, Monsignor, I'm going to do what I've normally done. I'm going to read, and then I'm going to leave all the controversial answers to you. Okay? Okay, but um, it's um, basically his point here is that all these heretics are all over the board. They're not consistent. That's why, that's a good point. And that's why, to me, this applies to the last 1,800 years in spades. Uh, But let's go on reading here. Uh, So here's, here's what he says. All heretics, being unlearned and ignorant of God's ways of ordering things and uninstructed in the dispensation concerning man, as being blind to the truth, contradict their own salvation. Now that statement, Monsignor, is is just full of stuff that I would you say this applies, Monsignor? All heretics, being unlearned and ignorant of God's ways of ordering things, and uninstructed in the dispensation concerning man, as being blind to the truth, contradict their own salvation. Yeah, I think, you know, I think he is assuming that all of us, every human being wants to be saved, wants to have the gift of life eternal. Um, but these guys are looking in the wrong place for it. And their, their hope is not, going to be sustained or nurtured by um, by the the way that they're seeking because they're looking at they're looking the theories are all wrong yeah if I mean use a common analogy uh, you and I both grew up during the the days of the moon shots Apollo and yeah. Uh, we remember watching those, you know, and, and being glued to the TV set when um, when that was happening. And I remember the analogy all the way back then that when, when they start off and they, and they leave the ground, one of the reasons that there are retro rockets in those ships is that if it's off by a fraction of an inch, it's going to miss the moon. So they, there has to be corrections. Yeah. And, and what are the corrections to get back on the path? To get back on the path. So in a way, he's saying that the part of the problem is if these heretics have rejected the path to begin with, to me, that's what I think about when he says they're unlearned. See, when I, Monsignor, when I 
think about the names of some of those heretics that he's talking about, Valentinus and Marcion, and those guys aren't dummies. No, and he's going to make that point in the next section that they're, they're intellectually arrogant. Yeah, it's not that they haven't been educated. It's not that they, they may be scholars. They may have their heads full of stuff. Isn't that come from Winnie the Pooh or something? You know, they've, they've got, uh, you know, they've got lots of stuff in there, but they're, they're unlearned of the path. And if you got the path wrong, it doesn't matter whether you got retro rockets or not, because you don't know what to go back to, to get you on the right path. Um, in a way, I'm arguing, as I say that, in my mind, I'm arguing against sola scriptura. Because if one thinks all needs the Bible as the path, and you get to some controversial sections, well, how are you going to get yourself back on? And Irenaeus would say, as we get to it, there is a path to know. Because all these guys that we've been talking about have not rejected Scripture at all. Not a one of them. That right, Monsignor? There isn't one. Marcion wants to cut it down. Right. But they want to use it. They want to, they want to stay faithful to it. And they want to stay faithful to it because they, they agree it came from God. Right, which God it came from, some of we're arguing about, but, but it, it, it's, it's foundational. But if yeah. you don't have the path right, if you're unlearned about the path, if you're ignorant of God's ways of ordering things, and then what about this Monsignor? What does he mean by if they're uninstructed in the dispensation concerning man? What does he mean by the dispensation concerning man? I think he means if they don't understand that that salvation history is is supervised by one God, the Father, and not all those emanations yeah. and yeah, he does the he does um, <clears throat> uh, two other times he uses that phrase dispensation of something. And in the section we're going to skip over, he talks about the dispensation of the virgin. And so there's that. But also, um, on the, the last paragraph we're going to look at in the paragraph 497, he goes back to that dispensation relating to man. Again, so... Uh, so and, and so a dispensation means not just a segment of time, but a segment of time that has been ordained by God. Okay. So if you're ignorant of the path, you're ignorant of God's way of ordering things, you're, you're uninstructed in this that you talk about, the way God has ordered the salvation history. Therefore, being blind to the truth, they're undercutting, they're contradicting their own salvation. And you know, Monsignor, I'll just say this, that as I read this section, I found this very meaningful to me as I struggle with issues about the church or, or about our separated brethren and all that, because people can be well-meaning, but undercutting, contradicting their own salvation. 
which is why Coming Home Network does what it does. That's why we do what we do, because mm-hmm. of our convictions there. So he, he's, this is our introduction in these, these people, well-meaning. I, I think Valentinus was a well-meaning guy, probably real sincere, you know. Um, uh, but how can you know what's true? Now we're going to jump over the next big section and, and Monsignor, uh, why, why is it okay for us to jump over this next huge section? Uh, well, Marcus, I think it's okay because we've been through it, um, <laughs> several times already. This is a, basically a, a catalog of the different heresies that he's, he's dealing with all f- basically flying under the banner of Gnostic, but, um, but there are many different Gnostic schools and he's, he talks about them and the consequences of what they believe. In, in some ways, I feel this confirms, at least goes along with the thought that I, I expressed a number of episodes ago that I kind of think that the original source of this whole huge tome were series of sermons or lectures that he gave because a, a, a vast majority of the people who would receive this information are not going to be ha- able to have a printed copy of it in their hands. I doubt it. <laughs> yeah. Because there was no printing. It was all copied by hand. And so all this information would be just stuck in some book somewhere. So either later or or right after he writes it, it first gets preached. So that's why this next section, he would bring everything he said before to summarize as, a, as an example of what he's just said. These are all just bringing together all that he said to give an example of what happens when these well-meaning teachers who are unlearned, untrained, ignorant of that path of God's interpretive teaching that puts it puts scripture into perspective, apostolic teaching, if they're ignorant of that, they get off on all kinds of things, and here's a summary of that. Okay, but so let's jump to chapter twenty, section one, and it really picks up with Jesse said again, as if he was just think of him saying this in public. For all these, and so what he means by these, the heretics, all these are far later than the bishops to whom the apostle delivered. The churches. So, Monsignor, what's the significance about the, that they're later then? That means they've in, they've invented their stuff is newfangled. They've invented it. <laughs> that the deposit has already been laid securely by the apostles. And a new is bad. <laughs> you know, that reminds me of there was a a very fine Presbyterian radio preacher down in. Uh, he came from out of Key Biscayne, Florida. His name was Stephen Brown. I don't, I don't know if he's still alive. God rest his soul if, if he's passed. But he was a. I really enjoyed. I got to meet him once, and he was a Presbyterian, and and uh, 
he has a book called Don't, I think it was called No, no Dormat Christianity. Uh, it was a good book, you know, a good, a good preacher. But he used to say in that book, in that thing, if it's, if it's new, then it smells of smoke. <laughs> I like it. He sounds like a terrific guy. Because <laughs> what he's saying is, if it's new, then where's it come from? It's going to have that smell of smoke on it. And that's Irenaeus. That's right. Yeah, I think that's right, Aaron. For our, you know, Marcus, I on, I was I made a little note to myself about that first. He uses the word bishops here, mm-hmm. which I found interesting because. Um, in most places in in against heresies, he speaks about the elders. Here he he uses the word bishop, and I just thought that was interesting. Well, and I we, don't know what that means. Well, but, um, I, I'm pretty sure the, all through the book he's used those interchangeably when he does interchangeably, use them. Right? Yeah, bishops, which would be episcopoi. Yeah. Right. Not presbyter, but episcopoi, right. but elder. Is presbyter, yeah. So we got episcopal, and so he's at this time; those are interchangeable. Apparently, so. So, um, and he also used them as pupils, pupils of the apostles. That's right. Uh huh. And I I remember being at an ordination of a deacon, Catholic deacon, a couple years ago, and the bishop of Steubenville at the time, uh, in his homily made the distinction that in the early days of the church, on the one hand, there was a dis- there there was a lot of crossover between episcopoi and presbyter presbyters. Yeah. You know, that sometimes the, the early fathers used those terms interchangeably, but there was one distinction. There was one distinction that was only ever referred to of the bishops and not the presbyter. You know what that was, Matir? Laying their hands on the head and ordaining. Exactly. That presbyters didn't do that. Yeah. Episcopal, bishops. So there was the one distinction. Whenever you hear about it, it was always a presbyter. I mean, excuse me, an episcopal, a bishop. But here's you said, here he emphasizes the bishops. He uses that term. To whom the apostles delivered the churches. And so there you have the emphasis of the apostles to their episcopoi being passed down. Mm-hmm. And this is the third book we manifested with all diligence. This in the third book, we manifested with all diligence. So now here's, here's where he's pointing back. You know, if you want the details, right. go back. Go back. Therefore, the aforesaid heretics, being blind to the truth, must needs walk this way and that, out of the right track. And so the traces of their doctrine are scattered here and there in a discordant and illogical way. That's the last 1,800 years. That's right. And, of course, that's what he was talking about in the section above, 19.2. Um, they don't, they're, they're just, they don't, their teaching doesn't hold together. It's inconsistent. 
Yeah, again, well-meaning uh-huh. and reading Scripture, trying to un- understand Scripture, but if you don't have the unifying path, and it, it makes me interesting uh, 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 in a thing I recently put in a chart I was doing, on the one hand, we have the phrase, which I don't think he, I don't think has been formulated yet, and that's the phrase, the marks of the church, yeah. one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. That definitive description hasn't been penned yet, I don't think. Right, Monsignor? Right. That, I don't think so, no. No, but there's the, def- you know, this is the, the definition, the marks of the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, which is a part of the Nicene Creed, or was that added later? Constantinople. Um, I mean, I think it it dates Chalcedon. to Saint Cyril of uh, Jerusalem and his catechesis. Okay. That creed from Jerusalem is where I where that's first we encounter that. About uh, about a hundred years yeah. after this, at least. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. Okay. But you put that juxtaposed to the idea, and I I, I got this from a a, a Protestant. Encyclopedia of Christianity when it says there's over 30,000 denominations in the world. <laughs> so. And that comes from a Protestant uh, encyclopedia of Christianity. Yeah. Um, and I think in that book they estimate a, a new one starts every five days. Now, whether there's really 30,000 or how they, the criteria they use, but this reminds me of what we've just talked about, right? Walks this way well, and that. Imagine how imagine how expensive it is to operate the uh, the ecumenical centers now. If <laughs> we've got to have dialogue with all those thirty thousand, and if they're all to be considered equal, imagine how big the console would have to be to have a speed dial to the head of every one of those <laughs> denominations. You know, you can't you can't have one speed dial for just one. You got to have it for everybody. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Needs walks this way and that out of the right track, and so the traces of their doctrine are scattered here and there in a discordant, illogical way. I mean, that really would describe Christianity today, but it is enlightening that he's describing Christianity at the end of the second century already. Yeah. The unity our Lord prayed for is has not arrived yet in my mind. But he, then he goes on, and here's where the word but is there. But, so I got it circled in my paragraph. But, those who are of the church have a regular path, encircling the whole world, the tradition thereof from the apostles being secure. Which path grants us to behold that all have one and the same faith, since all teach one and the same God and Father, believe the same economy of the Son of God's incarnation, and know the same gift of the Spirit, and meditate on the same precepts, and maintain the same form of government over the church, and wait for the same coming of the Lord, and maintain the same salvation of the whole man, in other words, of the soul and body. Now, that was a long, meaty sentence, Monsignor, but there's a lot of important stuff in there. 
Marcus, if, if you, I didn't tell you that I wanted to do this. Okay, um, that's fine. The, You're going to do a liturgical just, dance to, descri- to <laughs> demonstrate no, this? I, was, no? <laughs> I found on my shelf um, a book called Drinking from the Hidden Fountain, a patristic breviary. Move over a little bit. It's not on. It's not showing. Okay. There we oh, go. Yeah. Okay, great. Patristic breviary. This this was done by Thomas Spidlick, um, and it was originally published in Italian back in the 1990s. And it's a modern express. It's sort of a paraphrase of what you just read, um, and it's two paragraphs. I just wanted to share it with you because okay. I thought they did a fabulous job with this. And it's um, the the reading is called "More True Than the Truth." <laughs> Some people abandon the teachings of the church and fail to understand how a simple and devout person can have more worth than a philosopher who blasphemes without restraint. Heretics are like that. Mm-hmm. Heretics are always wanting to find something more true than the truth. They're always choosing new and unreliable ways. But like the blind led by the blind, they will fall into the abyss of ignorance by their own fault. The church is like paradise on earth. You may eat freely of the fruit of every tree in the garden, says the Spirit of God. In our case, he means feed on the whole of Scripture. Do not, but do not do it with intellectual pride and do not swallow the opinions of heretics. They pretend to possess the knowledge of good and evil, but they are impiously elevating their own intelligence above the creator. Beware, by devouring the ideas of the heretics, we banish ourselves from the paradise of life. <laughs> that's a, I thought that's, that was a, kind of an impressive way to put it. Well, that's actually a summary, yeah. not just of this paragraph, but of of the of entire the whole, yeah the entire section we're looking at i mean that's a wonderful summary of this very issue you know we yeah in the beginning in the second half of the 20th century to today the church has hesitated to use the word heretic and it might be a a, a pastoral move and you know we we want to we want to be able to stand side by side with with others who believe in Christ because we want to help each other get to uh, the paradise of life, as they used Irenaeus's words. But you know what? It's I think it's always good for people to remind themselves what the root of that word heresy is. It's they're off the path. It, it means to be off the right path. Which is, and, uh, which is exactly why Irenaeus uses, but those who are of the church have a regular path. That's right. They have a that's regular, right. There's a normal path. There's a, there's a true path. There, and, and if you're ignorant of it, if you don't know about it, if you're blind from it, it's hard to stay on the path, to know if you're on the path. So to... To tell somebody, excuse me, but you're a heretic. Now, you know, the, the, the hair on the back of somebody's neck is going to go up if you call them a heretic nowadays. But if we say, no, 
It's because we love you. It's because we love you that we want you to make sure you're on the path. And you're not contradicting your own salvation. Irenaeus' words. Um, years ago, I was taking flying lessons. I had an instructor that was a good Christian. <laughs> we were lear- we were learning how to make landings at night, and um, and he he used the basically used this idea of the landing lights along the runway being scripture and tradition. Yeah, and you you want to stay right in that between them. You don't want to wander off to the side because you don't know what's in the ditch on the other side. And I always thought that was a very helpful thing. You know, it's interesting you say that because I think there was a theologian in the 20th century, I think his name was Karl Barth, (laughs) who for him it was scripture and the newspaper. Did he actually say that? I think it was Karl Barth that said that. Oh, scripture my and the newspaper. <laughs> and, I, and those of you, but correct me if wrong, and I think it was Karl Barth that said that. And, well, and you're his point run off being, the runway then. Well, his point <laughs> being that Scripture alone was the, was the source, and then from Scripture you understand how to live today. So, I mean, there would have been his... Yeah. His... Uh, but... On the other hand, are you? How do you know? Look at if you look at all the things that he says. This is on the path, and what path is it? It circles the world, and it's the but the foundation of it is the tradition thereof from the apostles, being secure, being secure. For Irenaeus, it was always the apostolic deposit of faith that we've received from Christ. And he would say written and oral. Most of it ended up in the New Testament, he would say. We see that mm-hmm. earlier. But there is, how do you understand it? How do you understand it? And that's why you've got to hold on to that. Um, this path grants us to behold that all have one in the same faith, since all teach one in the same God and Father, unlike all those heretics of his day. Right, Monsieur? Believe the yeah. same economy of the Son of God's incarnation. Know the same gift of the Spirit. Meditate on the same precepts and maintain the same form of government That's over the church. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. He made an emphasis on that. Bishops, think of Ignatius of Antioch. The necessity to be in union with your bishop. Uh, and then wait for the same coming of the Lord. Still at this time is still the idea that it's imminent. And we're not too many uh, podcasts away from getting into this. Yeah, yeah. The imminency of the coming of the Lord and maintain the same salvation of the whole man, the soul and the body thing. Okay, that's a part of that. And as for, he goes on, and as for the church... Her preaching is true and stable, and in her throughout the whole world, one in the same way of salvation is declared. And you know, I um, how should I? 
introduce this. It could get complicated, but you know, the <laughs> I, I always struggled with this idea of what what is the analogy of faith? And the more I've studied it over the years, it's really been helpful to me, but because um, the analogy of faith is based on um, on um, Paul in Paul wrote wrote about this in Romans twelve six. Um, I just want to, can we just yeah. spend a moment looking at this a minute? Yeah, I got to look it up real quick. Well, while here. you're looking it up, it, see what I remember, uh, Irenaeus using the phrase the rule of faith, the rule right. of faith, which he would have, I think. It was a the form of the creed that they have at that time. I thought that's right. That's correct. But but go ahead. So this is this is something that will be developed later in Catholic theology, actually in Protestant theology too. I didn't realize the analogy of faith is found in in the reformers too. Okay. Yeah, their idea that you cannot interpret one section of scripture over against another. Um. Uh, uh, anyway, Paul says. Um, in 12, Romans 12, 6, um, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. He uses, oh, that's a modern translation of it. But the, the idea is that, that um, you know, the exercise of these gifts like prophecy has to be, um, um, in consistent with the faith. And so this analogy of faith in the catechism, we find it on in paragraph 114. Um, um, the idea is that, that we have to be careful. The church is obligated to, to that her teaching has to be um, in accordance with or in proportion to um, the faith that has been delivered, and it it can't wander off in some direction. Um, and and here we find, you know, he's basically he's talking about that here in the the same church teaches the same faith in the Blessed Trinity um, about what is to come in our lives, and the same the church is um, shares the same form of government over the church centered on the bishop because that was the will will of the apostles and um anyway this whole idea of the analogy of faith is is a very helpful thing i think mm -hmm. um because truth there is a coherence to truth christian truth um and he's going to really get into this here for me when i was reading this uh, what struck my mind is when he says, and as for the church, and I know I was guilty of this, and it still happens that when you'll hear this phrase, the church, when we Catholics say it, we have a, a mental image of what is the church. I've got my local parish, St. Anne's. It's connected in a diocese of Columbus. It's in the archdiocese of Cincinnati. And it's, you know, it's connected to Rome through the bishop. And so we, th we think of it as this hierarchical connectivity, physical hierarchical connectivity. This is the church, and we're in union with the bishop. I think that's come. But underneath this, 
it's possible for us to forget something. That what really connects all these churches is what he's talking about here. It's the it's the connectivity of truth. That's it. That's right. That's it's right. not primarily the connectivity of Episcopal sub, uh, submission. Right. It's because that whole structure is to serve as serve the truth, to superintendent and guard the truth, not to create the truth. And and earlier yeah. when he says. Way back in, I think, chapter three, when he, book three, when he talks about, uh, the, you know, the successions of bishops, and we could go through them all, but the, because this book is short, yeah, right, because the book is short, let's give one the most illustrious, and that's the one, that one church to which all churches must agree, because, why? Because it was founded on the witness of two apostles, Paul and Peter. Why? Because of the truth. This is the path. This is the path. Her teaching. And so when I, I went to a, a visit a, a Nazarene church a couple weeks ago, just went incognito, went and, and enjoyed it, and sat in an adult Bible study. And that teacher, very fine Christian man, and, and uh, uh, but he many times during his conversation talked about the church. The church teaches this. And I knew... I know that he doesn't, when he said the church, he didn't mean the Nazarene church as opposed to the Presbyterian Methodist or the Baptist or the Catholic. He has this more, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a kind of something you can't put your finger on. It's the church. God has established the church to proclaim what's true. Well, what, what's the church today? What do they mean by that? You'll see that in Christianity Today, the magazine. An author will just use the phrase, the church. But what's he talking about? Sounds like these are great candidates for the Coming Home Network. Well, <laughs> but in, in a way, Irenaeus <laughs> is talking about this idea of, of defining the church apart from the path. It's a, a more elusive idea apart from the path yeah. that he's talking yeah. about. Um, the whole world, one in the same way of salvation is declared. I remember one of the reasons when I made my journey to the Catholic Church is I realized as a Presbyterian pastor that not every well-meaning Protestant preacher had the same idea of what salvation was. A Methodist a Calvinist, Pentecostal, Episcopalian, oh, have different ideas on what's necessary to be saved. So there isn't one way of salvation. He goes on, for to her is entrusted the light of God and therefore the wisdom of God, whereby he saved, saveth all men is sung in the place of going forth, and in the streets dealeth fearlessly, is preached on the top of the walls, and speaketh boldly in the gates of the city. There he's quoting from Proverbs. For the church everywhere preaches the truth, and this is the candlestick with seven wicks bearing the light of Christ. What's he alluding to there, Monsignor? 
the seven candlesticks. Um, well, that takes us to um, Exodus twenty-five thirty-seven, and on, actually, our editor has already given us these texts here, and Revelation one twenty, that speaks about the seven candlesticks as the seven churches of Asia Minor, which I assume is a a kind of a way of speaking about the universal church, yeah, yeah, the, continuity. the whole church there. Yeah, yeah. The, the church is a continuity of the Old Testament people of God. This, you know, the, yeah. the, the candlestick. But as as I read through this audience, and, and if, in case you don't have this in front of you, hear his emphasis on the church as the guardian of what is true. Uh, Paul says, "A pillar and bulwark of the truth is the church." Irenaeus says, "The pillar and bulwark of the church is the truth." you can't take the two apart because if you do you'll lose both is what he's saying and we've 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 uh, cited this several times in our podcast but you know where he back in i think it'd been book three he speaks about how the the church in in germany and the church in africa and the church and they don't teach different things they teach one in the same faith um, Marcus, my humble opinion is that here is an area where the church has really gone off the rails now because we have yeah. the Episcopal Conference in Germany teaching one thing. Um, you know, the, the churches in Africa and, the, and uh, um, the Third World are very orthodox and holding on. I mean, it's just... It would be inconceivable yeah. that these renegade Episcopal conferences are allowed to run off with the game like this. And again, my personal view, which, you know, those watching, this isn't the view of EWTN or of, Fran or of Coming Home Network, is that what happened over time is we see in the early days here, and Irenaeus in for years to come, the idea, whenever there was controversy, was to go back to the path. The apostolic deposit of faith. Go back to the path. Make sure we're not. Are we on path? Are we on the path? The apostolic. Even when in the fourth century, when the even the bishops are in councils arguing over whether we can use a philosophical word that isn't in scripture, homoousius, to to does that best clarify? the relationship between the Father and the Son, or or whether we're trying to understand whether Jesus had one or two wills. You know, they're get but their point is they're trying to keep everybody on the path. That's the whole point, right, Monsignor? It's on the path. And I think what's happened over the centuries is that sometimes people forget the path. They're not no longer looking. Isn't wasn't the idea of the word ressourcement returning to the path? Yes. That's right. Yeah. To go back to these this early foundation that we're talking about here. That was behind Vatican II. That was yeah. Ratzinger and back to the <clears throat> path. Ressourcement. When he talks about a hermeneutic of continuity, he's talking about going back to the path. Amen, brother. 
<laughs> and so we're seeing at a time when, you know, even before the— so what's going to happen after this is that actual faithful bishops are going to be at each other's throats over some of these issues. That's not happening yet here. So he's able to clearly say, keep to the path, the path. Section 2, for those then who forsake the preaching of the church— Impute unskillfulness to the holy elders, not considering how much worthier is a devout but untaught person than a blaspheming and shameless sophist. I love that statement. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> these these arrogant these these intellectually arrogant academics. <laughs> Of course, I've always felt in all the years I was a pastor that the holiest people in the church are the ones in the pews, not not the ones in the pulpits. Uh, I've seen that over and over and over again. So, but he's also you know, pointing, Marcus. Yes, Marcus. I just go just a reflection on what we just finished with too about the universality of the faith. Don't you? Well, I think one of the most wonderful experiences in my life has been. We go to a mass at St. Peter's Basilica where people from all over the world are there. And there is this sense, even though we don't speak the same language, there's a sense that we have the same faith. And I got to tell you, I couldn't agree with you more. I remember one of the first times I was in Rome and I was over there for a conference. This would have been in the mid 90s. And I was. I was uh, housed in a place called uh, Casa Maria. Um, I don't think it's a place for Pope France. I think it was another one or something like that. Anyway, so I'm yeah. I'm staying in this place all by myself, and I get up in the morning, and there's breakfast for everybody. And when I got down in the breakfast room, I was in a room full of African bishops. They were all dark-skinned. And they're all from Africa, and I just we and, and we're starting breakfast, and as I'm there, one of the must maybe an American bishop or or a, a, stood up and said, uh, you know, he, he would brothers or what? May we say prayer? And so I'm wondering what are they going to say? And here we are, bishops from Africa. And all over the place, and I hear the lowly layman sitting there, and guess what we all say together, word for word, exactly. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. It cracked me up. <laughs> the unity of the church for it me was, ex- it was expressed in that prayer. Cracked yeah. me up. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. And it is, and it's just, you know, to, to be with people from other cultures and other, you know, all over the world, and we pray the same way, um, we believe the same faith. It's what Irenaeus says, it just gives you a sense of confidence and stability. Um, it, but, and that's what he's talking yeah. about. He just said, you know, yeah. that the, the basically the, the devout but on untaught person is worthier than a blaspheming and shameless sophist. And he goes on, but such are all the heretics and they who imagine themselves to be discoverers of something more besides the truth, following 
what has been foretold, performing their journey in many ways and in many forms and in much weakness, not having always the same opinions on the same subjects. They are led about as blind men by the blind. Justly they will fall into the hidden pit of ignorance, always seeking and never finding the truth. The hidden pit of ignorance, always seeking but never finding the truth. That's an awesome phrase too, Monsignor. It seems so descriptive of what's happened over the centuries. Always seeking, but never finding the truth. Boy, yeah. And for anyone that's studied um, religion in our lifetime, isn't that the way they, yeah. I mean, that's certainly a description. Of oh, what, I, and I, I recommend yeah. Ross Duthate's book on uh, A Country of Heretics, I think is what it's called, which is yeah. kind of a history of the last 50, 60 years. I mean, it's a really eye-opener of this exact thing. I got to write that down. Ross, Ross Duthate's book, yeah. um, uh, A Nation of Heretics, I think is what it's called. It's an awesome description. In fact, it was printed like 10 years ago. I'd love to have interview him and say, okay, <laughs> what has the last 10 years done to, you know, the trajectory? Yes, I mean, right. good Lord Jesus. I mean, it just... And then he says, and we must fly. Oh, no, excuse, excuse me. We must therefore fly from their views and watch very carefully lest at any time we be disturbed by them. But, but excuse me, but if we're to fly from their views, where are we to go? If you live at a time when when every voice, and, and he didn't even have the internet. He couldn't Google it. He wasn't inundated with opinion. More Excuse me, more Catholics listen to pundits on the internet than their bishops today. Think about it. More Catholics, oh. more Christians listen to somebody on the internet than their spiritual leader at home. It's just what's going, the devil laughs. So where do we go? Well, he says, he says, we must fly for refuge to the church and be trained in her bosom and be nourished in the scriptures of the Lord. For the church is planted a paradise in this world. Of every tree, then of paragraphs, ye shall eat morsels, saith the Spirit of God, i.e., feed ye on all the Lord's Scripture. But ye shall not eat of a mind that is lifted up, neither touch any where the contentiousness of heretics. You know, I'd like to again emphasize there are a lot of non Catholic Christians that don't think Catholics are committed to the Scriptures. No, that's the path. That is the path. Um, and I want to clarify here also, because sometimes we Catholics, when we are critical of sola scriptura, excuse me, we sometimes misrepresent sola scriptura, because this idea that sola scriptura means the Bible alone, as if there's no tradition at all 
is not a fair representation of our separated brethren's view of Scripture at all. There, there are very few, if any, people who actually live by sola scriptura. They always have some form of tradition. So as you said, Monsignor, yeah. you know, you've got Scripture and tradition as you're trying to land your little— uh, you, you've got a— Monsignor built his own airplane, everybody. So as you're trying to land your own airplane, you built yourself— uh, you MacGyvered together uh, with barbed wire and duct tape. You know, you were trying to land it there between Scripture and tradition that the the question is, where is which one takes authority, Scripture or tradition? Well, and If you want to land in the middle of the runway... <laughs> there's a both hand. There's a both hand. So, so the question is, we don't have any problem with Scripture, although our non-Catholic Christians might not like some of the Old Testament books. Granted, I'm not a big fan of First Maccabees. You know, there's not a lot that, that, that inspires me in First Maccabees. But, but, but the question is, which tradition? Which tradition? That's really what separates us. It's not so much Scripture. It's which tradition? So there are, there are non-Catholic Christians that have thrown the Catholic tradition out, but, but, but they still have a tradition. Some of the tradition is great. I think about, you know, I'm living up here in Ohio, and I'm surrounded by Amish. Well, a part of the Amish tradition is great. They've done, a, in some ways, a better job of some aspects of simplicity and detachment and reminding us that's a part of the gospel. So that tradition's good. On the other hand, they're caught up in, in um, if you you know, the works righteousness far more than the Catholic tradition. They replaced one with another. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's oppressive. You talk to any ex Amish about what life was like, and it can be very oppressive. I don't want to be critical of the Amish here at all. But my point is, is your tradition trustworthy? We've got Scripture. We're on the same page there. But is your tradition trustworthy so that how you interpret Scripture is right? And that's exactly what Irenaeus is talking about here. He's not being critical of Scripture. He's being critical of the interpretations, the other paths. And I, I was thinking about that translation you had, Monsignor, you read. We're, we're hearing it echoed in all here because it was a yeah. translation of that. Um, so uh, what do you think, Marcus, when a Catholic, when, when Catholic people begin to wonder whether their bishops are introducing ideas that don't sit comfortably with the tradition that they've been raised on. Right. Do you want to say anything about that? It, to me, one of the beauties of understanding, I'll just talk a bit about it. To me, one of the beauties of understanding God's steadfast love and that's a, a, a phrase in the Revised Standard Version and how it translates a Hebrew word called hesed. You see it all through the Old Testament. Yeah. And that word is often used in the description of the path of God's people where God 
tells them this is how you're to live. This is what's true. Here's the path. But in the mystery of God's steadfast love, he always allows his people freedom to respond. Irenaeus emphasized that earlier, remember? He has a whole mm-hmm. section on the freedom to respond. God doesn't force anybody. But his message is always stay on the path. How do you know what the path is? Well, we believe Christ gave us a church. How do we know the church? Well, the church is that which guards the deposit. That's what we're talking about. So what about bishops that get off the path? That's my question. What about bishops? To me, it, it always calls us to recognize mea culpa. He's a man like me. It also reminds me of what David there's a, there's a story in the Old Testament when David is right there with a spear beside a sleeping Saul, and David has the full freedom to, to kill Saul, who's, been, who's trying to kill him. And God has given him the opportunity. Saul's asleep, and there's David with a spear. And what does David do? He lets Saul go because he says, I'll never touch God's anointed. To me, that's our view of our bishops, of our cardinals, and our popes. It's not our job to stand in judgment of our bishops, cardinals, or popes. If we see them going off the base, it's not so much our job to judge them, but to point to the path. To point back to the path. And when they, when they you know, we got to be careful, is my point. We got to be careful. They're God's anointed. But they can, free, they can make a mistake. We make mistakes. I know you never make a mistake, Monsignor, but I make a mistake once in a while. <laughs> but it points us back to the path. That's how you know. And to me, that's what Irenaeus is saying here. It's the path. It's the apostolic deposit of faith, which in my mind is what they were trying to do in Vatican II in Ressourcement, in the hermeneutic of continuity, was get back on the path and cut away some stuff, get back on the path. And I'm sorry. No, I was just, you know, I was um, being a a devotee of... um, St. John Henry Newman. I just, <laughs> one of the most amazing things that he ever did was um, was that essay that he did on the role of the faithful um, um, in, in, you know, preserving the faith of the church. And he, he studied the fourth century and all those Arian bishops that were validly ordained, right? Yep. Um, they were anointed. Yet, um, yet, yet, so many of them abandon the faith, um, and and it, and uh, Newman was so moved by reading the, especially Saint Athanasius, about how it was that the ordinary faithful were the ones that basically called everything back again yeah. to the tradition, and that. Um, developed in the church in the idea of the census fidelium, um, 
that the the that the the sense of faith in the people of God is that's there by the Holy Spirit, and they're part of the church, and so they're they're part of of the church's voice or or way of discerning um, what is true and what is the false or heretical way. And I did just one. I just wanted to quote one passage from Newman for you, yep. and then I'll I'll okay. yield on this. But I was just fascinated by this. Um, this came from a wonderful article by um, by a, a wonderful, wonderful theologian named Father Hermann Geisler, who worked for many years at the uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and he said um, he said that Newman. Um, what is especially important to Newman is the function of the sense of believing as a spiritual immune system. The religious life of a people is of a certain quality and direction, and these are tested by the mode in which it encounters the various opinions, customs, and institutions which are submitted to it. Drive a stake into a river's bed, and you will find and you will at once ascertain which way it is running and at what speed. Throw up a straw into the air and you will see which way the wind blows. Submit your heretical and Catholic principle to the action of the multitude and you will be able to pronounce at once whether it is imbued with Catholic truth or with heretical falsehood. That's Cardinal Newman on that. And that is a beautiful sense about the the sense of the faithful is that, and I, I think I find, I mean, because he was pointing back to St. Irenaeus in this as well. It is this sense of the universality of the faith that will help local churches and local leaders be corrected sometimes. Uh, of course, I don't want to uh, contradict a saint. So uh, to be critical of Newman, uh, my only comment I would make on that is I can hear people taking that too far. Oh, sure. That's possible. As if the voice of the people is a democratic. No, and then he, he denies that too. He, he denies that. So the reason I say yeah. that is let's, let's think of the voice of the people of America concerning religion today. When there are more nuns N-O-N-E-S, than there are Catholic, practicing Catholics in America. You know, uh, and yeah. one might say there are more Christians than there are nuns, N-O-N-E-S, but those Christians aren't all on the same path. They're not united on on whether there's a trinity or, or one, you know, I mean, in or how we understand mankind, or how we understand marriage, or how we understand abortion, or how we understand moral issues. And so how do you define the vox populi, the voice of the people? In, in my mind is, that's why I personally have found the study of Irenaeus so enlightening, because it reminds us, it isn't so much the voice of the people, it's the path. It's the apostolic path. So if we're struggling with that within the church, within the path, you have the voice of the people. That's what Newman's talking about. Within the church, 
you have the voice of the people. You get outside the church, and all of a sudden, you've got opinions all over the place. And that's why, for example, here we are in 2021. I'm having, I almost had an old man moment there. (laughs) Because I was thinking at the same time that a hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, the majority of Christians all believed that contraception was wrong. A hundred years ago, all Christians agreed that contraception was wrong. And then your former church oh, yes. opened the crack in the door in 1930 at the Lambeth Conference. That's right. And then with—that's 30, and then within 50 years, only the Catholic Church teaches that contraception is a sin. So the Vox Popley— the voice of the people, in general, has said contraception's okay once you get off the path. And so the idea, to me, of what John Twenty-Third was calling us to do in Vatican Council, and what Ratzinger emphasized in John Paul II, John Paul VI, John Paul II, and then Benedict the Sixteenth is the hermeneutic of continuity to this. And, as it says in the document Gaudium et Spes, I don't have it in front of me to quote, but there are times when the church kind of recognizes that we got off path a little bit. Yeah, that's right. And we got to come back. and, And how do we discern that? Is it the institution that discerns that, or is it the whole people of God that? Yeah, yeah. and Newman, as yeah. you and I talked about before the program, had a book called "Consulting Laity in the Matters of Religion," right? Yeah, and it was yeah. one of the bishops of London that criticized him. What that said, you don't talk to laity about anything. They're only good to hunt, to shoot, to entertain. <laughs> so it's taken a while. And that was one of the key things that the Vatican Council did in my mind, listening to the Holy Spirit, was recognizing the voice of the laity as a part of that. So, wow. Yeah, um, absolutely. We're so sorry, yeah. audience. We've gone on and on and on. But let's. what I'm going to do, Muncie, let me read all the way to the end of this, and then let, we'll, we'll close some comments, because I want to finish this section. Okay. Um, when he says, um, for they, the heretics, profess themselves to have the knowledge of good and evil— And upon the God who made them, they hurl their own impious thoughts. And so they carry their thoughts on high, beyond the just measure of thinking. For which cause the apostle hath said, Not to be wise more than one ought to be wise, but to be wise with soberness. He's quoting Romans. Lest feeding upon their knowledge that which is wise more than it ought to be, we be cast out of the paradise of life, into which the Lord bringeth those who obey his instructions, gathering up into himself all things which are in heaven and which are in earth. Now the things in heaven are spiritual things, but the things in earth is the dispensation relating to man. These accordingly he hath gathered up unto, into himself, 
uniting man to spirit and placing spirit in man, he became himself the head of the spirit, giving at the same time the spirit to be the head of man. For through him we have seen and heard and speak. Now, there's a lot there. I don't know if we can... There's a lot to reflect on in the end, but because of time, we may need to leave that till the next episode, I'm thinking. Um, but <clears throat> what one thing that jumped out in me in this is, you know, that we might, if we, if we get off the path, folks, and we get off on our own ideas and we lift ourselves up and we've got our own understanding of what good and bad is and we reject the path, he's saying that we might be cast out of the paradise of life. In other words, we'll lose our salvation. Into which the Lord bringeth those who obey his instructions. You know, Monsignor, what, joined, what jumped out at me on that was that one of the problems with many Protestant traditions is they have, because they're so uncomfortable with anything that reeks of works righteousness, mm. that they have a real problem of the actual teachings of Christ. And so they, they, they compartmentalize the actual teaching of Christ as plan A before the cross. In other words, Jesus talked that to those people, but they don't apply to us anymore. That was before the cross, back when people believed that you could earn your salvation. But after the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, and since grace has, take, has paid for all our sins and we're freed from the law, this is an interpretation of Romans, that therefore we're now in plan B. And so the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, for example, doesn't apply anymore. And oh. so many of those people don't even reference to the Sermon on the Mount. That was before. We look to Romans. We look to Galatians. We look to Ephesians. It's very common amongst Protestants. They may not say it that way. But I'm telling you, you'll hear more in those particular traditions of preaching from Paul and Ephesians and Romans and Galatians than you'll ever hear sermons from the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, yeah, we used to have that. Kind of, I remember as an Anglican, um, people who did, did priests prefer to preach from the epistle or from the gospel? I always sense that there might be some tensions like you described there. Well, Jesus um, says in the Sermon on the Mount, you must be, unless you're more righteous than the Pharisees, you're not getting into heaven. You're not going to be in the kingdom. And then he says, we must be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. Well, Luther says, well, I, I can't do that. And so I don't have to try anymore because I'm covered with Christ's righteousness. I'm a bunch of stuff underneath, but yeah. I'm covered with his righteousness so that when I stand before God and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? We don't talk about anything we've done or not done. We just point to Jesus. It's his righteousness. It's his righteousness. So whether I'm obedient to anything he says in the Sermon on the Mount, I just recognize I'm a failure. I'm a sinner. I can't do that. That's why I need Jesus. And that's a whole theology that's undercut 
I think the ability for many Protestant ministers that read the Bible and say, I've got to call my people to sinless lives. They need to leave because it says in, in Paul that you can't be a, a fornicator and get into heaven. doesn't matter if you accepted Jesus back 50 years ago. If you're a fornicator now, you're not going to end up in heaven unless you change your life and repent and turn to God. That's the path. That's the path. And if you get off that path, he's saying, you'll be cast out of the paradise of life into which the Lord bringeth those who obey his instructions. All right, Monsignor. We've waxed eloquently on this, as P.G. Woodhouse would say. Any closing Uh, thoughts before I ask you to, to close us with prayer? No, I, are we gonna? We're gonna pick up on yeah. on the, this last section next yeah. week. Yeah, we'll, so I won't. So we don't. We'll hold off on the soul, spirit, and body question. That we'll start there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just, I just, again, just, I love the way that this whole section is. He he's got on one side these heretics that are intellectually arrogant, <laughs> and even simple people can be faithful proclaimers of the gospel. Um, I, that's the thing that I think jumps out at me. Yeah. Yeah. Just a warning to us that not overvalue in, intel, intellect, the intellect. Yeah. <laughs> Mea culpa. Right. <laughs> Maximum. <laughs> Would you close with, with prayer? Of course, yeah. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We thank you, blessed Lord, for uh, these words from St. Irenaeus. Help us to be faithful in our lives and in how we uh, witness to the world about the true way and to be confident as we fly to the church for our hope and for our salvation. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor. And thank all of you for joining us in this episode. Again, I know I've said this in the past, but when you listen to these long diatribes that Monsignor and I go through, you can pause it at any moment and then come back to it later. But I hope that these are an encouragement to you. God bless you. We'll join you next week on the next episode of Deep in History. <laughs>